Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. Last year, before the pandemic, there were reports of what seemed to be mysterious drone formations over eastern Colorado. Over a five-year period, 57 incidents only, I believe five of them had been solved. On today's show, we get an update on whether anyone ever solved that mystery. Plus, we explore what creates storms that cause dangerous flash flooding. That and more coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Rainstorms have created hazardous flooding conditions along I-70 in the Glenwood Canyon and in northern Colorado. Officials have found a second body in the Poudre Canyon out of three people who went missing during last week's flash flooding in mudslides. Burn scars from last year's massive and record-breaking wildfires played a big role in creating the dangerous water flows. But the monsoon season was also a factor. KUNC's Ashley Picconi is with us now to talk about these weather patterns and the thunderstorms they create. Hi, Ashley. Hello. What kind of storms typically cause flash floods in Colorado? And I'm thinking, you know, of course, beyond the obvious, the storms that produce rain. Is there a certain type of storm that is more likely to lead to floods? Well, it kind of depends. You really want calm winds in the upper levels of the atmosphere. That keeps the storm in one place, which means all the rain is concentrated in one area. You're also looking for lots of water vapor in the atmosphere. To get the most rain, the air should be saturated. So that means it's holding as much water as possible. But for the storm above the Poudre Canyon last week, Colorado Climate Center's Peter Goebel said there wasn't actually much saturation. He said it was a shockingly normal storm. Based on the ingredients we saw in the atmosphere Tuesday evening, I I don't think we should expect this to be, say, a freak event. Because of the funneling effect in canyons and the burned areas not soaking up moisture, a normal storm turned into a deadly flood. And Goebel said he wouldn't be surprised if this happens again this summer. I know the monsoon season is upon us now. Is that a factor in these storms? Definitely. So monsoons happen when the sun beats down on land. In our case, it's the southwestern U.S. The land heats up, and so the air above it expands. And the ocean is being hit by that same sunlight, but because it's water, it heats up slower than the land. That creates a pressure difference. The air over the land is at a low pressure, and the air over the ocean is at a high pressure. So the ocean air moves towards the land, and it brings all of its rain and moisture along. Goebel said the storms last week got their moisture from the Gulf of Mexico. But that's not always the case in Colorado. He said crops in the central Great Plains can sometimes exhale enough water vapor to create storms here as well. Just because you're in monsoon season doesn't mean you'll see a monsoonal pattern. It'll kind of come and go. And it's also a little bit fickle. We've had really poor monsoons the last couple years. So it's um, it's really nice to see a better monsoon taking place at least so far this year. Now, are we good at predicting these storms and the floods they create? Not really. Uh, Colorado (laughs) State University atmospheric scientist Aaron Hill said scientists are good at measuring the ingredients for a storm, like the water vapor, 
but it's not as simple as tell me where it's going to rain today. It's not really that possible at the moment in meteorology. Weather models can predict a thunderstorm based on the ingredients in the air, like the water vapor saturation, but they can't exactly identify where and how hard it will strike. Hill and his team at CSU are trying to improve the computer models. And that's where my research is really focused in on how we can leverage artificial intelligence to improve these forecasts uh, and using these tools to better inform forecasters so they can communicate the threat better to the public. They look at big data sets of past rainfall events, and they're trying to train a computer to identify what it is in the environment that made the storm so severe. I can imagine that might be an even more difficult task as the climate changes. So how does global warming fit into all of this? That's also an active area of research. Hill said the storms themselves might not change at all. It's not exactly a perfect relationship of climate change is going to do this to storms. Climate change may increase our risk of fires, which then increase our vulnerability to flash flooding. Both Hill and Goebel told me that thunderstorms and flash floods are just incredibly hard to predict. They said forecasters do their absolute best, but the whole prediction process has a lot of room for improvement. Sure. Well, those accurate weather predictions are so crucial for safety. Ashley Picconi is KUNC's science reporting fellow. Ashley, thank you so much for sharing this. You're welcome. Just before the start of the pandemic last year, eastern Colorado was center stage for a kind of whodunit. Ranchers and farmers and even a few deputy sheriffs saw what they thought were mysterious drones in the night sky. The recent release of a national report on unidentified aerial phenomena got KUNC's Michael DeYoana wondering, did anyone ever get to the bottom of the drones in that mystery? And if they didn't, what are the implications? For a few weeks in early 2020, Colorado was in the national spotlight. The unexplained mystery drones. Flying in these weird grid-like patterns. Sometimes in formation, but who's flying them? After dozens of distant sightings, we had two back-to-back close encounters. And this is a story I did for KUNC. It's loud. It is, yeah. That's the sound of something hovering over Ray Marie Knowles' house north of Kiowa on the night of January 4th. She captured flashing lights and a buzzing noise in a grainy cell phone video. They're big, and the undercarriage is lit up. You can tell it's not any kind of plane or anything like that. You can kind of see the outline in the dark. What Knowles believes she saw was a really big drone, one of dozens she counted that night. And she wasn't the only one who wanted to know what was behind it. Douglas Johnson was watching the news reports from his home in Maryland. One of the things I noticed early on is that some of the activity reported was near Warren Air Force Base. Warren Air Base is just outside Cheyenne, Wyoming, and it's tasked with securing dozens of active nuclear missile silos on the plains of Wyoming, Nebraska, and Colorado. My attention was piqued by that. Johnson is a researcher with the Scientific Coalition for Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, or UAP, studies. It's a think tank that uses scientific methods to try to explain mysterious objects in the skies. But along the way, he discovered something less mystifying than UFOs, but no less perplexing government officials tracking reports of drones near two dozen nuclear power facilities around the country. Over a five-year period, 57 incidents only, I believe five of them had been solved. 
uh, at the time I got the list. Johnson got the information after filing a Freedom of Information Act request with the Federal Nuclear Regulatory Commission. It covers incidents as recently as 2019. And for Colorado's mysterious drones? I proceeded uh, in due course to file a number of requests with various federal agencies, which ultimately produced thousands of pages of, uh, of documents. Which he shared with KUNC. They add to some of what's already been reported. Like last year, when the Air Force said no drones were coming from Warren Air Base. And these documents contain no evidence that objects ever entered military or restricted airspace. But they do provide a glimpse of how much officials scrambled to explain the mystery and how little they discovered, including the Federal Aviation Administration. The FAA had people in the field who were seriously trying to get to the bottom of this and find out who was behind these formation flying drones uh, that were alarming the populace. So let's rewind to when this all began, late December 2019. A state official contacted the FAA to ask for their assistance with reports about strange sightings. And as headlines hit, the top person in the FAA, its administrator, Steve Dixon, emailed his team on December 29th asking, do we have any information about these purported sightings? The answer on January 3rd was more sightings. An FAA official noted there were sightings in several eastern Colorado counties and that even deputy sheriffs were among the witnesses. Documents also indicate the FAA contacted small airports, drone operators, and offices in the Pentagon and NORAD, the Colorado Springs-based command that is responsible for safeguarding skies from attack. All of it led nowhere. Days later, 77 local sheriffs, state officials, and representatives from federal agencies, including the FAA, gathered in the small city of Brush in Morgan County. News reporters showed up too, but they were locked out. But notes obtained in the Freedom of Information request indicate officials were concerned about residents who might try to shoot down the objects. And the FAA did not know what, if any, laws or regulations were broken. In the end, the agency believed the only true way to address the issue would be to, quote, identify the operator. Afterwards, officials announced that they were forming a task force. And they made plans to coordinate uh, an investigation to find out who was doing this. But roughly a week later, the Colorado Department of Homeland Security put out a press release saying there was no evidence supporting reported sightings of large drones. The state said some people had seen airplanes or planets and stars and the FAA suspended its operations around the same time, saying reports of sightings had significantly diminished and that they had failed to see or find anything. It seems like they just kind of shrugged and moved on to more pressing business. So just what happened is still a mystery. In reporting this story, an FAA spokesperson said the agency has not received, quote, any information that enabled us to determine what exactly it was that people reported seeing, including whether what people saw were drones, and if so, who was flying them. And Colorado Homeland Security officials said they've received no new complaints. 
But Douglas Johnson says the incident exposes a potential gap in U.S. defenses. Even if this Colorado, Nebraska activity turns out to be some actor that's totally innocuous, harmless, um, it still is troubling that the government can't find out who it is or says they haven't been able to find out. Activity on that scale going on for at least three weeks, that is of concern. Colorado Senator Michael Bennett feels the same way. The Democrat sits on the Intelligence Committee and helped lead efforts to get the national report on unidentified aerial phenomena released. It also struggled for explanations. And Bennett's office said he is greatly concerned about the issue, including the mysterious drone sightings of early 2020. Getting to the bottom of these phenomena, Bennett said, is a national security imperative. Michael DeOanna, KUNC. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. In 2016, the city of Denver launched a pilot supportive housing program for people who are experiencing homelessness. The program was created to explore simple questions, like what happens if you give people experiencing chronic homelessness a permanent place to live and intense social services? Do they remain in stable housing? Do they have fewer interactions with the police? Do they use fewer emergency resources in general? In short, are programs like this worthwhile? Answering these questions is where the Urban Institute comes in. The city hired that nonprofit research group to evaluate the program. That evaluation was recently completed. We are joined now by Sarah Gillespie, an Urban Institute researcher who worked on the study. Sarah, welcome to Colorado Edition. Thank you. What is supportive housing? How did it get started in Denver? Supportive housing is the combination of permanent, affordable housing and supportive services to help people stay in housing. And so when we say permanent affordable housing, it means the person has a lease just like anyone else would have a lease. It is their home and they pay no more than 30% of their income. And then the supportive services often look like intensive case management, access to um, clinical care and health care, and anything else that person might need to work on the goals they have and work on staying stable in housing. So this is more than just a roof over someone's head. It is also access to services they might not have. That's right. And we often say in this program, supportive housing was provided through a housing first approach, but housing first is not housing only. So that's a good point. It just means that the housing comes without any preconditions. Um, You don't have to agree to anything. You don't have to meet any requirements. Um, The housing is provided first, understanding that that is such an important foundation and necessary foundation to then be able to work on the other goals. So you get people into housing. And then how do you measure the effectiveness of the program? I'm curious what metrics you're looking at and how do you even design an experiment like this? Right. And this supportive housing evaluation looked at many, many outcomes. The very first one, the kind of early sign of how the program is doing is whether people are actually getting into housing and staying in housing. We found that to be the really early sign of success in Denver. People were entering housing at high rates and they were staying at one year, at two years, at three years. We saw high rates of people staying in housing. It might not sound as promising as we think it is, but I think what it does is disrupt this false narrative that homelessness is unsolvable or that people choose to live on the street. 
what we saw is the opposite, that when you offer the right type of housing through that housing first approach and the right set of services, people will stay in housing. The other outcomes that we, that this project was really interested in is what that means for all of the other systems. So we know when you're experiencing homelessness, you're more likely to interact with the police. You're more likely to spend time in jail. You're more likely to use the emergency department instead of preventative healthcare services. And what we wanted to know is when you are stable in housing, does that cycle change? And what we found is that it does, right? And, and that it reduces people's interactions with police. It reduces the time they spend in jail. It increases their access to office-based care and reduces the time they spend in the emergency department. How did you set up the study? I'm just wondering if every participant got these kinds of services. So this is what we call a randomized controlled trial design, which is the most rigorous type of evaluation or what we sometimes call the gold standard in research. And we did that because Denver wanted to be sure that any changes we saw, any outcomes we saw, were directly because of the supportive housing and not because of anything else. So to do that, there is a group of people who receives the supportive housing program. Um, but what is important to know is that so many more people in Denver need supportive housing than the program was ever going to be able to provide. And so we had this group of eligible people, some of whom we could serve through the program, but those who the program didn't have the resources to serve created what we call the control group, right? So they met all of the same need and criteria as the people in the program, but because there weren't enough slots in the program, they were in the community receiving whatever usual care looks like, whatever services are available in the absence of this type of program. Oftentimes that looks like emergency shelter and other you know, emergency care. And so then we could compare the outcomes of the people in the supportive housing program to the outcomes of the people in usual care in the community who didn't have access to the program. And any difference we saw in those outcomes, we can attribute to the supportive housing program. Just to boil that down to a big takeaway, when you looked at all of the metrics, what was the effectiveness of the program? Supportive housing ends homelessness it ends the cycle of jail and emergency health care, and it reduces the public costs of that cycle. And I wanted to dive into that a little bit, too, because we all know the frequent use of emergency services is expensive. Certainly housing, uh, providing that and providing social services, that all has a significant price tag, too. So do programs like this ultimately save taxpayers money? That's a great point. What we know is that it absolutely reduces the cost of the outcomes in the absence of supportive housing. When people don't have supportive housing, the taxpayers have to pay for things like policing and jail and the emergency department. That all comes out of city and county budgets. And so while supportive housing is an intensive intervention and it comes with a cost, it then reduces the cost of those other budgets, right? And so what we say is that the outcomes from supportive housing offset about half the cost of the program. Um, and that's when you look across the board, because it's important to know it's not just local government who pays for supportive housing. Federal government pays for a lot of the housing assistance that gets used in a program like this. Federal government funds Medicaid, which can fund a part of those supportive services we're talking about. So the full cost of supportive housing does not fall on a local government. It really is blending and braiding multiple funding sources. But the benefits of supportive housing are big for local government. When you think about who pays for jail, who pays for police, who pays for 
um, shelter, a lot of that cost does fall on local government. And so when you think about the offset just for Denver, the city and county of Denver, almost all of the costs that all of the resources they had to put into supportive housing were offset by the benefits that accrued to their public budgets. And it makes me wonder too, is cost even the ultimate metric that we should be looking at? There is, of course, the human element. You know, from your perspective, how does how do all these cost-benefit calculations kind of play out? What we can observe are those tangible outcomes we've been talking about, like police contacts and arrests and jail stays. Those are things we can observe and we can measure and assign a cost to. But for sure, we know there is the well-being of people in the program. And that's why we always love as well to highlight the stories of participants in the programs and what program like this means for them and their life. Um, And I think that human well-being aspect, we don't, we're not able to quantify as well, but it's huge. And for sure, we want to offer evidence, compelling evidence on why this is a smart investment for government. But also there is the argument that we as a country should be solving homelessness. There is an answer to homelessness. We can end it. Um, and we, we know the solution. It's not that we don't know the solution. It's just that we need to scale what we know works. Sarah Gillespie is a housing policy researcher with the Urban Institute. Sarah, thank you so much for speaking with us. For sure. Thank you for having me. Colorado mountain towns are weathering a perfect storm of housing crisis, worker shortages, and waves of tourists, all eager to shake off the past year of pandemic isolation. In an effort to cool things down, many of the state's resort towns are starting to put limits on short-term vacation rentals. Jason Blevins has been covering this for the Colorado Sun, and he joins us now with more. Hi, Jason. Thanks for having me, Erin. I want to start off by talking about what the problem is that these communities are trying to address with these measures. What's going on now with short-term rentals that's different maybe compared to a few years ago? We've had this real estate boom up in the high country, right? Record real estate prices, bunch of people from urban settings moving to the mountains, Um, you know, people maybe moving into their second homes. And a a lot of these investors are putting these properties into the short-term rental market. Maybe they're not gonna spend a lot of time there. Uh, Maybe they they wanna use it, you know, a couple months a year and rent it out the rest of the time. But the feeling is in some of these communities that these short-term rental properties are taking away properties that are typically rented by locals long-term. So the hope is that, you know, maybe some increased regulation, maybe some caps, limits on short-term rentals can one, open up the long-term rental market, you know, provide more homes for locals to rent. And if not, maybe generate some more money for affordable housing and mitigation measures and some of the housing issues that are facing these smaller communities. Well, let's talk about what is being considered right now with the understanding that this is happening in a bunch of different towns. Could you kind of round up some of the plans under consideration? It ranges from like, you know, fully slashing the number of short-term rentals in Telluride, which would kick 300 owners out of the short-term rental market. And that could have pretty significant impacts versus Steamboat Springs, given a 90-day sort of suspension on short-term rental permits, Crested Butte, one-year suspension of short-term rental permits to Breckenridge. You know, Breckenridge has 3,800 vacation rentals, which is shocking. You know, the town's not even 5,000 people. And they're, um, you know, they're talking about a pretty significant increase in fees to help create some sort of housing. Um, You know, there's, there's, you know, there's plans that are like, let's wait for a second, let's take a breather to let's increase fees to let's slash the numbers. It's really runs this sort of gamut on how local communities can 
don't know, either further regulate or control short-term rentals to hopefully free up some housing. What is likely to happen with these moratoriums and uh, other proposed regulations? Is it going to be a help as these mountain communities manage the problems, or is it too little too late? It depends on what they want to accomplish. If they want to just take a breather and kind of assess this program, you know, and and maybe make sure that they have their that balance right, you know, do they have an, enough, you know, is enough of their homes set aside for short-term rentals or is it too many, you know, and just sort of give these communities time to to breathe and check this out and make sure they have the right balance of short-term rentals and long-term rental homes and things like that. Um, you know, if you want more money, uh, you know, that they, these homes might contribute. If you want to actually convert short-term rental homes to long-term rental housing, that might be a bigger ask from, it's not a foregone conclusion that once a house is pulled out of the short-term rental market, it will become a home for locals like that. That's not going to be the case, I think, in a lot of scenarios. So, you know, again, it's a wait and see, but we are seeing these communities doing anything and everything they can to help address this labor shortage that is uh, really pinching some of these tourist-dependent communities. Jason Blevins is a reporter with the Colorado Sun. You will find a link to his reporting at our website, KUNC.org. Thanks so much, Jason. Thanks, Aaron. That's our show for today. On tomorrow's Colorado edition, we explore the growing movement towards sending clinicians rather than police officers to respond to people in a mental health crisis. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Colorado edition from KUNC.